0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Barry, one of the uh, pastors here. Last week we did um, Psalm 1. And uh, if you were here, you'll remember how we we went through that and looked at how it um, talked about the righteous man and the happy man contrasted to um, the wicked man or the foolish man and, and walking in the light of the word of God. Well, today we're going to do Psalm 8, which Andrew's just read for us, which we can have that up on the screen, Alex, that would be great, um, which is, uh, is there one slide before that? Maybe there isn't. Yes, there you go. I was sure of it, certain of it. There's the, the entire Psalm in front of you. Um, it's, it's a sort of um, a bracketed psalm, it, it's got this little poetic device in it, which it begins and ends with the same words. So that everything you see in between those, those two verses, 1 and 9, is in the context of this opening um, phrase that I remember singing. It used to be a song of worship that was set to this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above The heavens. The inspiration for this psalm was, if you move it on one, Alex, to what we had before, was something like that. And that photograph was actually taken in northern Scotland um, of um, the night sky. But um, I remember seeing something vaguely similar in Kenya on one night when we were there. Uh, The rest of the nights were cloudy because it was nearly the rainy season. And I remember frequently seeing something like that in Devon as a child, before electricity was invented. And um, as soon as street lamps and automatic shed lights and kitchen lights come on the scene, you don't see that anymore. It's amazing how the little light, the little things of earth, can obscure the things of heaven. And, you know, if ever you've tried looking at the night sky, light pollution is your enemy, isn't it? It's, it really spoils it. But I remember standing in the garden and my dad pointing me up to the sky and saying, "You see, what's that wispy thing there? And you think, well, that's a cloud, Dad. Even I know that. He goes, no, it's not. That's the Milky Way. Go and find out what that was. It's a man of few words, my dad. Um, so you go away and you realize you're looking at this galaxy and you could see it. I I can't remember the last time I actually did see it, but this wispy little cloud thing in the night sky is millions and billions of stars stretched out among the heavens, one of millions and billions of galaxies. And the awe of it in the blackness and the darkness was awesome. That's a tautology, that sentence. But it was awe-inspiring and something that made you feel very small, cold, clear nights, no moon, no street lamps, revealed the grandeur of the universe. And I loved it, I used to get books on it, watch TV programs on it, and um, one Christmas I remember I got the um, Airfix Saturn V Apollo rocket, and I looked forward to that folk. thought, did you get that? It was quite easy, wasn't it? Because you only had to paint it black and white, and you could look like a really good um, kind of, you know... Um, modeler and, and show off about it. But it was um, round about that time. You can probably date me from when that was. Talking of which, do you remember? Is anyone here old enough to remember the Apollo missions? Very few of you. I, I knew I'd have to ask because you remember. You're just pretending. Um, between 1969 and 1972, I think they were. Um, the most famous one today is probably Apollo 13 because um, it had Tom Hanks in it and, um, but the most, most significant one historically was Apollo 11 and if you move it on one Alex ok trick question who is that? anyone know? somebody shout one out Neil Armstrong actually it's not is it? you know it well yeah yeah, that's because you're clever Robin Um, the trick is everyone thinks it's Neil Armstrong it's actually Buzz Aldrin because Neil Armstrong took the picture you see and you can just see him he's reflected in the visor you see so that's Neil Armstrong and when Pixar made Toy Story they needed a name for the astronaut hero and they thought Neil let's call him Buzz and this man's Buzz Aldrin And of course, uh, he and Neil Armstrong were the two first people to set foot from the human race on another world, on another heavenly body. And this was, at the time, the pinnacle of human achievement. Some would say, scientifically, it still is. And that was the famous picture. That was the iconic picture on the front page of every newspaper. Um, when it was published, and all the handouts and supplements and so on had that picture of man on the moon. And there was a great sense of pride, of achievement. Almost everyone felt that they'd achieved it, despite the fact it was the Americans that did it. And this this was humanity's achievement. And what's the great quote from Apollo 11? It's one small step for a man. One giant leap for mankind, and then he fell off the ladder. (laughs) Actually, there was a more significant quote, I think, which not many people know about. On the way back, surrounded and immersed in this glory, Buzz Aldrin said this. This is on the journey back to earth. I've been reflecting on the events of the past several days, and a verse from the Psalms comes to mind. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? So this psalm, Psalm 8, is one of the very few pieces of scripture to be read out loud off this earth. So it's a fairly unique bit of writing. And Buzz Aldrin was confronted by two Conflicting but complementary ideas. One was, the, was man at the peak of his achievement, and the moon landings were regarded as that, despite their questionable value. But also the infinite majesty of God and creation. And, and imagine, you know, if I got a good view from my back garden, imagine the view he had from the surface of the moon of the galaxies stretched out before him. And the reality is this, that the moon is only 250,000 miles away. You know, if you drive a diesel car, you can probably drive that far in your lifetime. You know, it's, um, it's not that far. And yet, what stretched out before him was the glory of creation. And we face that question too. You know, throughout history, man, mankind has been confronted by that question. Who am I? Who is God? And so what? So those are the three things I want to go through. Who is God? Who am I? And so what? We can move it to... Yes, that's, that's this question I want to sort of pose this morning. David is the author of this psalm. Um, he is pointing back constantly as you go through it to the creation story. The initiation of everything. Um, Genesis 1, 2 and 3. So that's, that's going to be a repetitive theme as we go through this. The first thing we see is God's testimony about Himself. Creation and everything in it, the Bible says, points to God. There is nothing divine in it. Sun, moon and stars are not divine beings. They simply testify to the, to the power of God. The pagan reaction... And the reaction surrounding David in every single country um, that that, um, uh, was around Israel at that time would be to worship those celestial bodies, to elevate them to a status of creators not created and endow them with virtues that they did not have. That's the basic assumption of pagan religion and it still is today. And if anything, it's slightly resurgent today. Israel was unique in asserting something called monotheism The one God And there, that entire pagan mode of thinking was broken Nature is not to be deified Interestingly, and I didn't know this since I, I read it In Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew There is no word for nature There is no truck with the concept of mother nature Gaia It's just not there Because it's a dangerous concept. It takes us away from creator God to a personality that doesn't exist. There is no such thing as nature. There are natural forces, but no personality of nature. And nature is um, made unsacred, desacredized in the Bible. It's a seminal theme because it leads to idolatry and putting our attention on things that take God's place. Secondly, there's no attempt in the Bible really to explain cosmology. It's not really a science book. The origin and the order of the universe played a great role in the, in the pagan religions of the time, but not in Israel. They looked at nature and saw, hang on, what is this? It's a signpost. It's a signpost to God. It points to him. It's a testimony. It's a living signature of God for us to look at. Psalm 19 is very, very similar in its content and orientation. Paul, when he writes about it in Romans 1, goes even further. And he says that testimony is so strong that no one has an excuse for not knowing God. God has left mankind without an excuse. So you look at this and you stand out there and you look at it and you think, you can go in two ways, can't you? You can reject God or let it point you to God. But you don't have an excuse, Paul says, for not being challenged with the existence of God. I had a little moment like that yesterday. I was putting this all together and I looked out of my sort of um, back patio window door thing and there was a, a bird feeder and on it were Several birds, including one robin. It's like a Christmas card, really. And I was playing some music, and the sun came out, and I just had one of those moments, you know. Like that. Just it was kind of like, God, it's, you are wonderful. And just, just three birds on a bird feeder, and some classical music. Until the Spotify ad kicked in and asked me if I was paying too much for my car insurance. And that, that rather broke the moment. But it was, it, you know, just for a moment there, I thought that is why nature is so beautiful, because it points us to God. Jesus quotes this psalm in his ministry too. He comes into Jerusalem and cleanses the temple. It's a significant act. And it says in, in Matthew that at the, after he did that, the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. And the chief priests and the scribes were indignant about this. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what the, the, the children are crying out in the temple because you're doing this? Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus said to them, have you never read? And then he quotes this psalm, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise or ordained praise. The little children's worldview was uncluttered with insecurity and pride. And they saw God at work and they gave him glory. They didn't ask why or question what Jesus was doing. They didn't even need to look at the cosmos and the planets and the stars. They just looked at Jesus and worshipped God. When you see God at work, when you see his handiwork... Don't harden your heart. Don't ask if there's a God. Just follow the signpost and let it take you to him. Be humble. Be like a child in the temple and allow it to bless you. God is the creator of everything. Secondly, David writes, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That's what Buzz Aldrin read out in his rocket as he hurtled back to earth. Psalm 8 is fairly unique in that it holds this glorification of God and also a glorification of man together in the same passage. It starts off with initial references to emphasize how humble man is. So it, uh, it, the weakness, frailty and vulnerability of man. What is man? And the words that are used there in, in, the, in, the, in the text, suggest frailty, dependence, pointing back to our humanity. Humanity is a, a derivation of a word that means soil, because we're made from the soil. But the tone of the question is not to humiliate man, but to ask in wonder, why do you love us so much? Despite the fact we're so small, why do you love us? And not only that, you are mindful of us. That's a very active verb, isn't it? Not just you are aware of us or you notice us from time to time. But God, you are mindful of man. We occupy your thoughts. You're passionate about us. God does not know the meaning of the word insignificant. Actually, I'm sure he does, but you know what I mean. The word "insignificant," when related to people, does not appear in God's lexicon. So, no matter how you feel when you look at the issues of the world, God knows your your thoughts. When Jesus talked about sparrows, again, he's making the same point, saying, "You know, if a couple of sparrows fall to the earth. God knows about it." How much more does he know your situation? God is mindful of you, and whatever is happening in your life right now, God knows about it. He can run the universe and look after you. All right. The saddest thing I read this week was—I um, don't know if this is still current—but there was, there was a, well, there is an ex-triple jumper called Jonathan Edwards. Do you remember him? And he used to present. Uh, songs of praise and all that kind of thing and parade his faith and link it very much with his athletic performance. And then one day he asked the, he asked this same question that the psalmist asked and came to the opposite answer. He said, what's the point in me asking God to help me in my life? I'm too insignificant. And he made the opposite journey and that's how he lost his faith. He lost grasp of his significance to God, his own individual significance to God. And I don't know whether he's reclaimed it since. But this psalm says, God is great and God thinks I'm great. No matter what I do, he thinks I'm great. And thirdly, in, in this, the psalmist is someone, David is someone who knows he can address God as you. He can talk about him in the first person, intimately, directly. David wasn't a priest, just a bloke, an ex-shepherd. But he talks to God as you, in the first person. This is an intimate psalm. This is a psalm that paints a picture of close relationship and love. We're encouraged by the psalms to call God you. Don't just join in with what everyone else is doing. When we worship, sing to God, because He wants to hear your voice. He wants to hear it no matter how you feel, and he knows how you feel. So he knows the reality. Never ever feel hypocritical or unworthy to come to God and say, "You." because God's desire is for that relationship. So that's the intimacy and wonder and, and significance. Which is emphasized in this verse 5, where it says, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Crowned him, that's mankind, with glory and honor. So the third question is, so what? We know who God is, and we've got this almost incomprehensible picture of humanity. So what? Those words glory, grandeur, honor, whatever translation you read, again in the Hebrew point back to Genesis being made in the image of God and they speak of royalty. They are titles that would would, would have been used for a king or queen. So to God, humanity is royalty amongst creation. We're, We're endowed with God's dignity, image, and his charge, his authority. He says, subdue the earth, look after it. Modelled on God's model of authority, which is as a loving sustainer of the universe. Um, I don't know, if you, can you put that picture of Chica back up, um, Alex? When you see this picture, and if, if we can't, we can't, but um, what you're looking at there is not, isn't that a great smile? I mean, I could actually just sit there and look at that smile. That is a queen in God's eyes, not just an unlucky child, but someone with royal status. And when people like Tier Fund do what they do, and when you do what you do to enable them to do what they do, you are restoring a royal personage to their place. It's a great work. A great work. And, and of course she's not the only one In situations similar to that. But we're not just helping out someone on hard times, we're restoring the royal dignity of a human being. Which in turn means that everything that we do as human beings has a sacred, kingly calling. So, um, who's going to work tomorrow? I hope some of you are. There's no tax. Who's going to be homemaking tomorrow, looking after children? Who's going to be teaching tomorrow? Who's going to be doing anything tomorrow? There is a sacred calling in it. What you do has a royal calling on how you go about it. It says, "You've given him dominion over the works of the uh, of, of the world. You've put all things under his feet." There's a story in um, Joshua, Joshua 10:24, when Joshua defeats the Ammonites. I don't know who they were, but they were defeated. And they had five kings, and he brings them before him, and he tells his commanders, come and put your feet on their neck. This was not good news. I won't go into what happened to them afterwards. But it symbolized victory, defeat, and subjection. And God says he, he has placed all things under our feet. That's what the phrase means. It's, it's, it refers back to this, this act of putting your enemy on the floor and putting your foot on their neck. He's done that in three ways. One is, spiritually, the forces of evil have been conquered by Christ. Secondly, physically, our enemies... We're told to conquer them through love, aren't we? Um, Abraham Lincoln says, "I make my, I destroy my enemy by making him my friend," and that's the way of um, a solution to enmity that Christ has brought into the world. And thirdly, your enemies are the things that assault you, the circumstances that, right now as I speak, you are worrying about. All of those things that have a form of control. Over you. Enemies are obstacles, afflictions, problems, temptations, everything. Maybe fear, maybe fear of that job you put your hand up to say, I'm doing tomorrow, I don't know whether I'll be doing it next week or next month. And God says, You are so significant to me, I'm giving you authority over those circumstances. Not that they will go away. Not that they will ever disappear, but you have authority over them. They will never destroy you if you live in that reality. And having gone through all of that, we arrive at the end of the circle again in the psalm. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We come back to worship. We start with worship, exploring who God is. We understand who we are and all the so-whats of that, and then we come back to worship God. So the glory for everything always goes back to him, and then we go around the circle again, exercising our role as kings and queens, because that's who God looks upon us as. We're going to have communion in a second. I just wonder if you'd stand with me, and I want to pray with you. I'd just like you to indulge me in this. I want you to think of your enemy, whatever problem that is, whatever the the biggest thing that assaults you, and I want you to put your foot on its neck. It's a slightly violent image, but it's a victory one, and we're just going to hand it to God right now. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we come before you, we worship you for your awesome greatness. We wonder at the majesty of your creation. And we wonder, with all those saints that have gone before us, how on earth you can be mindful of me where I am and the things that bother me make me frightened the things that hurt me the things that make me worried and I just want to hand them to you right now as your royal son or daughter I hand them to you and ask you Lord to bless me as your son or daughter Father forgive me for getting Your status for forgetting my status. And we would be together reconciled again today.